You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Dinich, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. I'm Ryan Inman, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Fred Lemmingson, you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. I'm Ben Utley, you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Welcome to What's Up Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence. Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson from Ready Investor One. And this is Doc G from Diversify.com. So, Paul Thompson, what's up next? Well, Doc, we have a panel of financial advisors, and our question today is, should the financial independence community be more accepting of financial advisors? Michael, would you mind going first, please? Sure. I'm Michael Dinich. I'm a financial advisor, and I'm a blogger at yourmoneygeek.com. Fantastic. Thanks for being on the line today. Ryan, can you give us a quick intro, please? I'm Ryan Inman. My firm is Physician Wall Services, and I podcast at Financial Residency. Fantastic. Thanks for being on here. Fred, same for you. Can you give us a quick intro, please? Sure. Fred Lemonson. I blog over at moneywithapurpose.com, and my business is Lemonson Capital Advisory. Fantastic. And last but certainly not least, Ben Utley. Can you give us a quick intro, please? I'm Ben Utley. I'm a practicing certified financial planner, and I'm the team leader at Physician Family Financial Advisors. All right. So I'd like to start today by throwing out a question that's really going to go to everybody. But what I found is almost every financial advisor I've ever met that's worth their salt will tell you that in their origin story, they had a moment where they looked at their profession and had a reckoning. They had a moment where they said, well, there's a good way to do this and a bad way to do this. Let me start with you, Ryan. Can you describe at what point you looked at your profession and said, there are two paths to take and I I have to take one here. Yeah, I think uh, I actually have two little pieces on that. First is when I was in grad school and I was working at Merrill Lynch underneath an advisor and realized that 95% of her work, she's an amazing person. I still keep in contact with her, but 95% of her work was sales and 5% was actual planning that then was outsourced to me as basically her intern. So looking at that and saying, you know, this, when she, and she actually lost a client of hers to another advisor in the lobby who was waiting to meet with her. Like it was that cutthroat. I'm like, hmm. I don't think I like this financial planning, quote unquote. It was actually a few years later that I came back into the industry working underneath another CFP and you know, ended up finding a fee-only shop, but had million dollar minimums. And when I decided to go off on my own was kind of the next one. It was like, hmm, do I charge AUM and go the, the normal route that we're kind of trained? And you know, self-reflection, it was like, I would not like to pay an AUM fee. Why would I make someone else pay that? So that was kind of the second piece of mine where I said, you know, I want to be a little bit different and charge a, a true flat fee in that mix. So kind of two different points there. Yeah. So Ben, I'd like to throw that same question over to you. If I remember correctly, you started your career kind of in what I'd call quote unquote big finance. Was there a moment there where you kind of said, hmm, this doesn't feel like what I want to be doing? About 25 years ago, I was I went to work at Waddell and Reed as kind of a massive career change. My original training is in chemistry. I have a master's degree. It's a long story that's on my website. I won't go into it. But when I changed my career, I wound up at Waddell and Reed. It was about four months into my stint there that I realized that something was like really wrong. It was uh, is not the vision that I had for kind of the profession where I wanted to be. I wanted to be helping and not selling and 
was not prior to that a salesperson. Now, this is 25 years ago before the flat fee retainer project model was really going. In fact, kind of the, the 1% of assets under management or 1.5% of assets under management was, I would say it was kind of beginning at that point. I was kind of at the leading edge of that. And I saw that as a cleaner way to be compensated at that time. And with that said, you know, uh, now we are on a monthly retainer model like uh, some of the better financial advisors are. I kind of thought, like, do I want to be on the other side of the table from me, you know, getting sales advice where if I buy a variable annuity, then the guy across the table from me gets paid more. And if I buy a mutual fund, they get paid less. You know, as a guy who's trained in the sciences, I couldn't make sense of it. And a guy who kind of leads with his heart, I just didn't feel good about it. I'd like to clarify quickly for those who are listening exactly the different fee structures that are as common in the industry. And we used a little bit of a term there called AUM, which I believe is assets under management. Ben, would you mind explaining the different fee structures? So the listeners are make sure. We're oh yeah, sure. I guess the most prevalent fee structure is not actually a fee structure at all. It's commission. And I would say well more than 90% of quote unquote financial advisors, actually salespeople are receiving a commission and, and specifically a commission is some money that they get paid when you buy a product from them. It's a slice of the profits from that product. And it can easily incentivize someone to sell you the thing that gets them the most pay. So that's probably more than 90% of advisors. That remaining 10%, if we uh, look at that, it's people that are charging either a blend of fees and commissions or uh, fee only. And so fee only means that they receive all the compensation from the client and it's all disclosed. And you can see it. There's going to be an invoice or a statement or there's going to be a charge in your account. Of that 10% that are fee only, I would say the vast majority of them, at least 75% by my estimate, are charging uh, what's known as assets under management or have an AUM-based fee model. And that means if you have a $100,000 account and they charge 1%, you pay $1,000 a year. Or if it's a $5 million account and they charge 1%, you're paying $50,000 a year. There are some conflicts in that fee model as well. And I think we'll probably get into that later. And then there are of the remaining 25% of 10%, I would say that those are people who charge some form of fee that's not based on assets. It could be based on net worth. It could be based on the number of hours that you work with them. So that's known as hourly. It could be based on the a length of time. So either monthly or quarterly or annually, that's typically called a retainer or a subscription. In my opinion, that is the cleanest business model because it compensates them either for the value of their time, their experience, or their skill. Fred, I'd like to pull you into this conversation because it seems to me that these two things are related. We, most advisors that at least I believe in and read, do have this origin story where they see the way financial advising is being practiced and aren't happy with it. And that has profound effects on how they set up their fee structure. Can you talk to us a little bit about your beginnings as a financial advisor and if you felt the conflicts of interest and that's why you set up your fee structures in a certain way? I've been at it longer than probably everybody on the panel here, gray hair of the bunch. So when I started, it was cold calling to sell municipal bonds for a regional stock brokerage firm. And I think probably all four of us have some sort of a similar story about that. And I think most of us at least when I started in the business, there wasn't a fee-based model. There wasn't really a flat fee model or any of this. And so I didn't really change the business model because of the fee structure as much as because of what a couple have already talked about is the sales structure and the conflicts of interest. I mean, there's nothing wrong with commissions per se in general, but I think there is, it certainly leads to, I mean, if you're at the end of the month short on revenue and you need to sell a product, then there's definitely bias there. But for me, it was more about the firm structure and the conflicts of interest where you have multiple masters to serve. The firm, the compliance department, you know, the revenue base for the firm, clients at the tail end of that a lot of times. And so I'm a slow learner. I did that for a long, long time and was in the worst part of it in bank brokerage, which there's conflicts galore in that. I, mean, I was always able to maintain my integrity and do the best for the client, but it's much harder to do that in an environment where the structure is not built that way. And the industry is being forced to change. I mean, even the four of us would say that we've changed over the years of our practice because the industry is changing. And it's a good thing. Uh, it's not always pleasant at time when you're used to being, you know, doing business one way. But I think at the end of the day, it's better for everybody if there's lots of choices. To me, that's what this boils down to. 
we'll probably get into later a discussion of the conflict between a lot of the fire bloggers. And I hope we get into that because I'd love to talk about that uh, in our industry, because I think that's something that needs to change. And I've challenged some of the bigger players in here about that at FinCon last fall about it. So anyway, that's, that's sort of the snapshot of my story. Yeah, I actually, I do want to get into your conversation you had with Mr. Money Mustache, but I'd like to tease out this idea of conflicts of interest a little more uh, with you, Michael. Conflicts of interest and being a fiduciary. Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of being a fiduciary? Fiduciary, for the people that aren't aware, basically just means that you're putting the client's interest ahead of your own. You're acting in their best financial interests. And that's certainly an admirable goal. The problem is, you know, people can disagree on what someone's best financial interest is. We all have our own different way of doing things, our own philosophies, our own psychology that's shaped by our experiences. So the way I might handle my own money or the way I might handle money for my clients could be different than how Fred might manage money for himself personally and how he might manage it for his clients. And uh, one thing I want kind of stress, and I do think that everybody should be a good fiduciary and everyone should put their clients best interest ahead of their own. But at the end of the day, there is not a method of compensation that's entirely more altruistic or presupposes that you're doing the correct thing for your clients. In fact, some of the biggest Ponzi schemes in history were pulled off by fee-only financial advisors and RAAs. Now, I'm not saying don't work with a fee-only financial advisor or RAA, but however, you know, anybody that tries to take the moral high ground and says, well, I'm inherently you know, more altruistic or I'm giving better financial advice because I'm charging 1% or I've never gotten a commission or I only sell at XYZ or I only charge ABC, I would be very wary of the advice that they're actually giving. So for example, in my practice, we actually sometimes use commission-based products. Now, why is that? Well, because I help people get health insurance so they can retire early. Health insurance pays a commission. If you buy health insurance on the exchange, if you buy it through me, I get a small commission for that. If you buy the same insurance policy directly on the exchange, you pay the exact same fee. So if someone comes into my office and says, Michael, I want to retire early and I need health insurance, you know, it really doesn't make sense for me to say, well, I'm going to take this moral high ground. I'm going to charge you $200 to tell you what the best health insurance policy is. And then you go and you try to find an insurance agent that's going to get that policy for me. I rather say, look, I'll charge you if you want to go that way, because if you feel that that's the way you're going to get the best integrity and financial advice, that's fine. But I also say, look, if I set up and do the planning for you and you buy the coverage and it's what you want and I get a fee and it doesn't cost you anything, what's wrong with that? How's that not acting as a fiduciary? So at the end of the day, it's really about what's in the advisor's heart. It's not really about how they're compensated. Someone could charge $25 for financial advice and do a bad plan. So one thing that I think is really important to me, and I don't want to go on a tangent on this, is we don't get into this, you know, the weeds where we say this person charges X, this person charges B, because at the end of the day, it's not about what the cost of the item is. It's about the value it delivers. A, a Mercedes vehicle, you know, you're into new vehicles or not. I know a lot of fire people, you know, rather have a 25-year-old Toyota, right? <laughs> But the reality is a Mercedes, you can feel the quality of a Mercedes. Now, whether it's worth that extra premium, I don't know. But if you slam the door on a Mercedes and you slam the door on a Dodge Neon, there's definitely a difference. Value price is subjective and you can't just look at the price of something and use that to determine the value. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I want to throw this over to Ryan. I like this idea that regardless of the fee structure, it's what's in the heart of the advisor that's important. But it does make me wonder, and I've always questioned this, you know, fiduciary is a great term, but is it enough? Just saying that someone's a fiduciary, will it really protect clients? I know you felt strongly from, from reading your content about having a fee-only structure. Do you feel that that's giving your clients the best protection from conflicts of interest? I think you got to look at it two ways. One is fee structure 
and the other is the advisor. Uh, when you talk to someone, you need to make sure that you gel with them, that you get a good vibe with them, you feel like you could trust them, uh, that you can actually have a long lasting re- relationship with that person. And I actually read Michael's stuff, so I, I knew what he was kind of getting into before he, he said it. And that doesn't mean he's a good or a bad advisor. It doesn't mean that Ben or myself or Fred are good or bad advisors because we choose one fee structure over another. You do have to weigh experience and expertise inside that. I look at this and say, what would I want my wife to go through on the other end? If I wasn't here, how would I want her to find a planner? And I would look at it and say, I want her to find someone that is as conflict-free as possible. There's no such thing as a true 100% conflict-free advisor. I wish there was, I would be it, but there's not. It's one of those things that if she could find someone that was awesome, but it would also be from a fiduciary standpoint, I would want someone to sign a fiduciary oath and to say like, you are going to put my interest ahead of yours under no circumstance. Would you not? That would be very important to me. So Ben, Ryan mentioned his wife. His wife is a physician and probably looks at blogs like ones you advertise on. The White Coat Investor, maybe Physician on Fire, Passive Income MD. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because all of these websites, websites I read all the time, really point you towards a DIY type of lifestyle, right? They tell you that you can understand your finances, you can manage your finances, and yet you also have a place on those websites saying, hey, I'm here and I can help you. Does it feel (laughs) conflicting to be part of this community and yet also feel like there's a big push to do it on your own? Yeah, it does feel conflicted. I have a lot of thoughts about it, so I'm not even sure where to begin actually with this. It took me a long time to advertise. And the cost of it is not it's not a large cost in our kind of versus revenues. It took me a long time to get comfortable with the ethics of paying to get attention of prospective clients on these websites, uh, some of which have a message that I, I do not totally agree with. So uh, what caused me to become comfortable ultimately was the fact that some of the people that are coming to us from those websites are, are not big followers of the sites. They're driving by. They found the advisor list, you know, just in a, in a Google search. When they come to us, I say, where do you come to us from? You know, we came from White Coat Investor, Physician on Fire, you know, whatever it happens to be. I say, you know, well, those are DIY sites. It's, their message is do it yourself. And, and yet we're talking here. Clearly, this is not a do it yourself place. So, you know, kind of what, what went wrong? You know, why, why are you here instead of doing this yourself? And they say, well, you know, I, I tried to do it myself and I'm just not comfortable with it. Or I want to do it myself, and I, I think I'd be good at it. I just don't have time. And in our case, we do with families, so it's children are taking up the time that they would otherwise use for that. And I, I think you know, raising children is a really good use of your time. So it comes down to time. I think some of it's confidence. Really, I think anyone who's going to do a job well is going to need knowledge, skill, and experience. The knowledge is the what. It's like, what, what do I do? The skill is how do I do it? But the experience is why do I do this? You know, the big picture and why not? Because if you have a physician who has knowledge and skill, but they don't have experience, they're not going to know when to operate and when not to operate. They're not going to know when to prescribe and when not to prescribe. And so I think that the experience is the thing that a really well an experienced financial advisor brings that simply is not available on the website. We do over 40 Roth conversions a year. You know, the person I'm talking to has never done one. I've been through bankruptcy with physicians. The person who's going through bankruptcy has never been through that before. Retirement, death, suicide, birth of a child, marriage, divorce. I've been through every one of those life transitions with physicians. So, you know, I have the experience. And, and really, that's the only thing that makes us, uh, my firm, unique or special is that we've, we've been there and done that for this kind of person literally hundreds of times. To follow on that, I guess that's kind of where, where I fit in the fire community. It's people who, you know, want to light their fire, but they don't know how to use a match and they can't find tinder and they're not comfortable necessarily sitting around the fire. So I'd just like to comment on something Ben said, which I think is really important that a lot of the fire bloggers and whether it's physicians or I would just do blanket younger investors, the focus on financial advice is strictly seems to be around investing. And there's this talk about the three fund portfolio and that's kind of the, you know, the be all do all. And that's fine. I mean, I love do it yourself. I think anybody that can should. The problem is we as financial advisors, all four of us, if you talk to each one of us about client stories, it's so much more than that. And younger investors in many ways have not experienced not just bad markets, but life. You know, divorce happens, cancer happens, 
lots of life events happen that don't fit into the category of the cut and dry DIY three fund portfolio. And that's what the four of us and financial advisors worth their weight will do is help people through life. I mean, I've, I've worked with clients for 25 years and, you know, I've been through losing a wife to Alzheimer's to helping someone find a continual care community to helping them find home health care providers. Do I get paid? Is that part of my financial plan? No, but that's part of what I do in relationship with clients. It's so much more than investing. And I just, I think that's one of the things that bothers me about in particularly younger investors and, and fire bloggers. There's sort of this echo chamber that they live in that, that say, hey, anybody can do this investing. Here's the problem with that. Fire bloggers and these folks, what percent, I'd love to hear everybody's thoughts. What are, what are you, 5% of the total investing community? 95% of people need help. And I wish the fire community would understand that. And rather than spending time getting on advice and fees, assets under management, whatever it is, teach people how to find an advisor that can help them. Whether it's, you know, I agree it's a fiduciary advisor. I also agree with Michael. Some people use a fiduciary advisor as a club to bash other ways of doing business. There's room for everybody. There's plenty of good advisors in all areas, be they fiduciary or Merrill Lynch or whatever, and they're bad in all areas. So I would just love to see the fire community be more open. And rather than sort of what I call, I wrote a post about it, bashing financial advisors, let's help people find good ones. That would be much better for everybody, don't you think? You know, to, to piggyback on that, Fred, really quick is haven't we as an industry done that to ourselves though, made it all about investments? From the way yes. that, you know, like back in the day, the way that you sold products to yes. now the way that, you know, most do AUM based, like we did it to ourselves to do that. And so I think the fire community or just bloggers in general, doesn't necessarily have to be even the fire community has kind of piggybacked on the piece that we gave them the tender to light us on fire, essentially, if, if we uh, want to get specific on it. But I really think that the education is great, that people can DIY not everyone is a good fit to work with an advisor and that's totally fine. Um, I know really smart people that are physicians that can do it themselves and don't need someone, but there's a good portion of the population that does need help. And when they read things that some bloggers kind of put out that you don't need one, I think they're actually doing their readers a disservice on that. Not everyone needs one, but there are people that do. I do wish that they acknowledge that. I think there are a few articles out there that say some good stuff about advisors in general. But some points though, I feel like, you know, they've got lots of fuel and we poured the gasoline to light us on fire as an industry. I'd like to kind of tease apart the quote unquote fire community, because I think that there are kind of two pieces to that community. There's leaders and followers. And so before we throw fire under the bus, I think it's important to tease those two things out. And, you know, since we're talking about conflicts of interest, I think it's important to recognize that some of the leaders of the fire community also have a conflict of interest. I mean, having a, an ad revenue-based model does not mean that your hands are clean, doesn't mean that you get to take the high ground. And even the fact that you disclose that doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's great that it's disclosed, but still there is a conflict of interest there and you can't disclose that away because uh, people tend to think in line with what butters their bread. So that's one thing I want to recognize. Second thing is... I consider myself a member of the fire community and probably not a leader in that. I don't, I don't think anyone thinks of me as a fire person, but I would definitely say I'm a fire follower. Many of the people that are kind of new to fire, maybe in the last five years, don't recognize that there was a book that kind of started this fire and it was called Your Money or Your Life. Pretty sure that everybody who's on the call has either read or is familiar with that book. At the time that that book came out, I was a chemistry grad student. And that is literally what changed my life. It's what caused me to get into this industry. I read it, the book, I believe it's Pete, Peter Dominguez, it's definitely Dominguez. And I saw that and I was like, whoa, this is a whole different way of dealing with money. You know, and I was a chemist. I, I didn't have any background in money. I, I didn't, never had any dreams of being a financial advisor. And when I read that, I was like, oh, this is so cool. I could get my freedom. I could support my family. I can take care of myself financially. There's a way to do this. And I did that for my family. And I enjoyed it so much. I thought everybody has got to have this. This is so cool. And then I started hunting around like, I want to be a financial advisor. And unfortunately, at the time that I kind of got into this, there wasn't really a path other than commissions, nor at that time did I even recognize that there was anything right or wrong about commissions. I had no perspective on you know, the rightness or the wrongness of any given revenue model. 
So I just jumped in with both feet and it was probably three or four months in that I began to, you know, not feel comfortable with what was there without branding it right or wrong. You know, it, I didn't feel good about it. I sought to make changes and ultimately started my own business a couple of years later on the percent of AUM model. You know, I've kind of experienced all the stages in the of fire from being, you know, benefiting from the advertisers as an advertiser, having lived it and walked it, having taught it. So I think there's room for all of us, but I, I don't think that the moral high ground is available to anyone. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is... There's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. That's a good point that Ben made. And that's actually what I wanted to kind of add to the conversation is that, you know, a lot of these bloggers kind of attack the financial advice industry. They attack it from the position of, well, you have conflicts of interest, you're making money and making money doesn't necessarily mean that you're a conflict of interest. Misleading people or misrepresenting things, you know, that's when you start getting into the conflicts of interest and the problems. And a lot of these bloggers have an incentive, a financial incentive to trash the financial advice community because they're trying to push, you know, links to personal capital. They're trying to push links. They're trying to push affiliate programs. And the one thing that's kind of nice about the financial advice community, even commission-based uh, advisors, you know, if you're a commission-based advisor, and I'm not sounding like I'm promoting commission-based advisors, but just so you're kind of familiar and your readers are familiar with the background, a financial advisor can be one or two or both a certain type of professional. They can be a registered rep, which traditionally is individuals that get a commission. They can be a financial uh, RIA, a registered investment advisor, who typically gets money, you know, charges for getting fees, or they can be a hybrid. 
which a lot of people are going to that model where they do a little bit of both so they can be in the position to best take advantage of, of their clients. But the nice thing is even with the registered rep, right, a registered rep typically operates under a broker dealer and that broker dealer has rules and guidelines on how they must interact with the public and how they must market and what they can say and what they can't say. A blogger, on the other hand, can say whatever they want with virtually impunity, and they can say things and they cannot disclose things and they can talk about historical returns where a blogger can't do that. Now, an RAA, on the other hand, is termed a fiduciary, but typically if an RAA does not have, they usually set up their own firm, right? So they're their own compliance person, and a lot of these RAAs will publish content and information on the internet, not all of them, but some of them will publish content and information that otherwise would not get approved by a broker dealer. You know, it's really important that we understand that not one of those models inherently means that you're going to get better advice, better content. And maybe someday there'll be some sort of ethical standards and, and moral standards and compliance that maybe bloggers will have to go through and some of the things that, that they put out. I really like that comment because I've thought of that, that before too, is in this modern day with blogging and being able to self-publish so easily, you can have an opinion and say whatever you, you want, whether it's right or not. It just doesn't matter. And so I'm very curious what it's like. Okay, I'm a real estate investor. And I can say whatever I want about real estate investing, but real estate agents cannot. They have this whole licensing board they have to go through. So do you guys. So I'm very curious, what is it like to be in fire follower and also be a, a CFP or a financial advisor in this space? I'll go to Ryan on that. What, what is it like to hear all of this unfiltered information, some of it good, a lot of it not good, and then you have to like moral high ground to stand up to? It's really frustrating to see without naming names or anything like that. There's just, there's bloggers out there that think that they know a lot, that they comment a lot on certain issues and then have their site littered with affiliates or pushing other programs and they're doing it for clicks. It's a lot of clickbait to get there. A lot of, I think, incorrect assumptions and then cashing in on and not disclosing even how much they make per link, per click. Most people don't even know how affiliates actually work to see how, you know, if you click on this link and you get paid, there may be buried somewhere in their disclosure that if you go looking for it, you'll see it. But if you look at it and say, oh, I click on personal capital link and you go put in your information, like that person makes like 15 bucks. So if they do a thousand people click on that, they made $15,000 for recommending personal capital and they might not ever use personal capital. I actually think personal capital is not that bad, but I know that if you load in a hundred thousand dollars, into liquid assets into there, whether it's your cash, your investments, whatever, you're going to get a call from personal capital and they're going to pitch you like a 60 basis points or something advisor, a virtual advisor that can manage money for you and do all these great things. No one happens to ever really talk about that or if it's good or bad. And personal capital is just paying these bloggers by an affiliate. Now, this is just one thing. There's, there's plenty of thousands of affiliates out there, but most of it's never disclosed. And so you've got mostly bad information and pitching a bunch of products, I don't think anything better than commissioned insurance person. And in all honesty, I think that's what I would equate it to. It's just selling a different product, really. Yeah, I wanna pull this over to Fred because it seems to me the fire community can certainly have blinders on at points and miss important aspects of investing and of financial advisors. And you actually talked about having some conversations at FinCon. You did a blog post where you talked about uh, having a conversation with Mr. Money Mustache. Do you want to talk about kind of what you told him? Well, I'm going to pick up on something Ryan said for just a second because I think it's really kind of ironic. Personal capital for I'm assuming, I don't even know if bloggers who, as Ryan said, get paid by them even know who they are. They manage seven or eight billion dollars in an assets under management fee model for their clients. They are the very antithesis of what fire bloggers hate is the AUM model, but they send people there over and over again and get paid their plate I just I don't know, I just find that kind of ironic. So at FinCon, there was a panel discussion on, for those of you who don't know, FinCon is a financial conference for you know bloggers and people in the personal finance business. So about 2,000 people that were there. It was my first one. It was, I think Michael was the first one. I 
uh, that you'd probably go more regularly. But it's a great conference involved in personal financing. All of the who's who's in the blogging community are there. And the final day, there was a panel discussion on, I don't remember what the topic was, to be honest with you, but it was Mr. Men Mustache and Carl from 1500 Days, Jillian, and then Physician on Fire. Just to show you the reach of this FinCon, there was a Q&A at the end, and a guy from Australia got up and said, asked a question to the panel and said, there seems to be this tension between the fire community and bloggers and the financial advisor community. And, you know, would you care to talk about that? And uh, Pete, Mr. Money Mustache, let it off and proceeded to say just things like all financial advisors want to do is they don't really want to help you you know, retire, they want to keep you as client as long as you can, and just something to the effect of draw money from you. They don't really want to help you sell your house to pay off the mortgage or pay off the mortgage with your funds because they get, I don't remember all it was, but I just remember I was really getting ticked at it because all of the things that he said, I've done none of it. And I, I would venture to say that all four of us on the panel, nobody's ever done any of that stuff. Okay, and here's the number one most well-known blogger who is considered quote, probably the father of the fire community saying things that were completely inaccurate to my business and to the other three on the panel and probably most financial advisors that were there and so i went up afterwards and i said look i really don't appreciate that man i mean you're a man of influence i respect what you do i love what you do and yeah everybody should be do-it-yourselfers and everybody should pay attention to finances Fact it is, most people don't. You and most of the people at this conference are the minority. How about you use your platform to talk about good financial advisors, what they are, how to find them, what they can do for you if you're not comfortable doing it yourself? And one of the other guys, I don't know if it was Michael or Ryan, but somebody said, you know, a lot of people are smart enough to do their own thing, but they just don't have the time or don't want to and want somebody else to take care of that for them. So, my point to him was just help people do that. Use your platform for something other than bashing somebody. I, don't, I just don't understand why some in the community feel the need to just kind of bash, you know, other people's businesses. I, it just it makes no sense to me. I mean, if you want to do it yourself, great. Most people don't. And then, to, in contrast, Physician on Fire commented and talked about. What to, did just that talked about what to look for in an advisor? He has a list of advisors on his website, and you know, I thanked him for that because I think that's a rare view. And I just wish that the fire community I love what they stand for, there's no arguing what they represent in terms of three principles of finance save that let there's spend less than you make, save and invest the difference, and avoid limited date. I mean. Nobody can argue. All of us as financial advisors teach our clients that. So I just would love to see this forum spread more in the FIRE community because they have a platform that can help a lot of people. I want to kind of jump in a little bit on that, Fred. So one thing, and I don't want to sound like I'm ripping on the FIRE bloggers, but one thing that bloggers really like to come after advisors with is, you know, fees, right? You're making money. But, you know, I'm going to peel back the curtain a little bit on, on the industry, if that's okay. And I'm going to let you know that this industry is cutthroat. I mean, I live in a small town. There are three or four other financial advisors in this small town. We hop the next town over. There's a bunch of other financial advisors. Everybody wants to grow their business, even myself included. We are adding value to our clients because if we don't add value to our clients, they're going to go to that other financial advisor. Most of our clients have come in. I mean, these are not naive people. People that are coming into our office with a million dollars didn't just fall off the turnip truck. These are intelligent people that are coming in and they're cost conscious. Believe me, the first question I get, no matter how magical a plan is, I believe it is, right? No matter how wonderful it is, and it's going to solve all their problems, no matter how great a plan is, the first question I get is not where's your proof, where's the research, it's what's it going to cost me? 
These people have the internet. They're aware of Vanguard. So contrary to popular, you know, public wisdom, financial advisors are not engaged in an epic conspiracy to deny people the right to invest in Vanguard. They have the internet. They read the blogs. They're aware of Vanguard and they believe there is value in working with a financial advisor. Now, will everyone you know, find value in working with a financial advisor? Probably not. But for some people, they find value and, you know, they're just not naive to the fees. And so, you know, we're getting rich, you know, off of their backs. We're delivering value to them. So, Ben, I have a question for that. How do you provide value and how would you talk to people who are considering hiring a financial advisor or thinking about considering the option of a financial advisor, how, how does a financial advisor provide value that justifies the cost associated with a financial advisor? And that question comes with the spirit of, I have no issue with anybody making money off of their services, but it, the services, and I think the big issue that a lot of financial advisors or bloggers talk about are the, hopefully the outliers, but the examples of where they hear a story about a client who challenges their financial advisor about why aren't you putting me in index funds? They say, well, that's probably where you should be, but I make more money over here. But since you found me out, that's the inherent concern that us, I mean, I I consider myself do-it-yourselfer type person and investor who definitely uses Vanguard and index funds and have been for years. But I'm not anti-financial advisors for people who can demonstrate to me that there is value. How, How do you comment to that? A few things to know about me as I answer that question. So my firm runs on a subscription-based model. Mm-hmm. Okay, so people people pay my firm a monthly fee for access to our services. I do serve some clients on an assets under management model because I've been doing this for 25 years. I've tried a few things. And we're gradually transitioning uh, clients from the assets under management model to the to the subscription-based model. And more than 50% of our revenues comes from subscription-based models. So I want you to know kind of where I'm at and you know how I get paid. But we're, we're not taking any new clients under the AUM-based model because I, I simply don't agree with it. I don't think it's my job to judge value. Ultimately, it's the, the customer or the client or the consumer's job to judge value. And uh, we think very carefully about value at my firm. Uh, in fact, at the, at the end of every call that we have with clients, we ask them, what part of this did you find most helpful or valuable? Did you get value from this call? The way that we look at value is it's simply cost-benefit. You know, did it, did it cost less than the benefit that came from it? And so you could measure that in terms of dollars and cents. Like, you know, I paid $500 for the advice. I've got $5,000 for the tax savings. That's one measure of cost benefit. Another one is in life energy. Like I was really, really worried about this. I was not sleeping before, you know, I paid this money that can be measured in hours of life and I feel better about things now. So that's cost benefit. The thing that I like about our business model now is there is a direct link back to cost. You know, they taught me in my first accounting class that the way to price a good or a service is to look at the cost of it. Like, what does it cost to manufacture that widget? How many, you know, how many grams of, of gold go into it or how many sticks of wood go into that? That's your actual cost. And then to get to the price, you simply add your margin to your cost. $75 an hour to deliver financial advice. And, you know, I want to have a 25% profit margin. So I, I build that at $100 an hour if, you know, if somebody wants to do that. We looked at this and we said, you know, there could be a direct correlation between the cost of the, of the service and the price of the service. So we made the, the cost very clear. It's, it's posted on our website in, in really bold print. I mean, you cannot miss it. And then right below that is the benefit. It's the services that people get and exactly how those services work and kind of the, the end result of those services. So we simply put the cost and the benefit out there as we see them. And we allow prospective clients and ongoing clients to, to judge the ongoing value of that. Yeah, Ryan, I'd like to pull this over to you because we do talk a lot about accountability and value. and as Michael was saying, there's little accountability for bloggers, but when you look at the FIRE community as a whole, it rightly can point to data about index investing and show that it's cost efficient and cheap. So I guess the question is this, you know, if I'm a FIRE blogger and I come to you and say, heck, let me just put my money in index funds and leave it there. Is that too simplistic? I mean, not really. I think, but it, it you balance out you know, what are the goals? What is the money used for? Here's the thing. Everyone doesn't talk about this, but it's the biggest driver. I've never had someone come to me and say, Hey Ryan, I just want to, you know, bust my butt in my career, do a really good job, amass this huge amount of wealth and then die with it. Like no one has ever said that. It's, I want to travel. I want to write a book. I want to retire early. I want to 
help the grandkids, uh, you know, out. I want to pay for my kids' colleges. Like everyone's got something that they want to do with money. I know most physicians that I work with, they're not motivated by money, but they're still working and it's for a reason. So I'm looking at it and going, what is the money used for? Well, you know, let's match your money around your lifestyle and understanding. Brian, can, can I jump in here real quick? I, I want to piggyback on something you said. Let's do it. You know, I, I think the FI in FIRE stands for financial independence. It doesn't stand for free investing. And there's this perception that, you know, all I need is three Vanguard funds and the truth. Well, actually, I think you should do it with one Vanguard fund. And if, you, if you're ready to do that, then, then go ahead. I'm, I'm fine with that. But so many people come to us and they're like, here, just invest my money. And we actually turn away clients to do that. I mean, we literally don't want to work with clients who are like, here, just invest my money. You know, we feel like money should have a reason in a person's life. It should bring a result. Uh, we see it as like the kind of the, the summary of the life energy that someone's put in. And, you know, someone like Ryan, someone like myself, someone like the other people on this call, we have so much more to bring than simply investing. I mean, I think almost everyone on the call at least would, would admit that at this point, investing is a commodity. I mean, it's free at Fidelity, right? They, they, don't, they have index funds that cost zero. It's almost free at places like Betterment. And I can see it someday when it won't be a percentage of assets under management for a robo-advisor. It will be a, a flat dollar fee, right? maybe a monthly or an annual fee. That's really not where the value is. Anyone who's going to a financial advisor simply for the act of investing, who has any capacity to do it themselves, would undoubtedly be better off at Vanguard. It's, it's the cheapest place. But investing, you know, when, when we study in the CFP, there are five areas to focus. Investing is only one-fifth of those areas. And I would wager that in the conversations that I have with my clients, that investing is it's probably about one out of 20 words spoken. I mean, it is, it is a tiny little sliver of what we do. And it's certainly not a, a valid platform to stand on in terms of the provision of value because there are people out there like Vanguard that are just, they're killing it. And, and my hat's off to them. I, I don't ever want to compete with Vanguard. So you know, the moment I hold myself up as some kind of investment guru, then you know we're shot. So the better financial advisor recognized that the most sustainable business model is one that's built on helping people achieve a life result to get an outcome. And I would uh, draw an analogy from the physician world. It's comparable to if people see doctors as pill pushers. You know, uh, sick, go to the doctor, get a pill, take it, and you're done. Well, they see financial advisors in a similar light. You know, got money, go to a financial advisor, invest it, you're done. But what you can get from a doctor, preventive care, in the financial advisor world is avoiding mistakes. In the doctor world, they'll, they'll give you options. A financial advisor can do that. And, you know, many times you go to a physician's office, you don't talk about pills. You know, it's, maybe the solution is simply eating better. Maybe in our world, the solution is simply saving more. An advisor who's prepared to have those conversations is worth a substantial amount, well beyond what uh, someone's getting from their quote-unquote investment expertise. I love where this is rounding out because as much as I would like to talk about this subject for the next two hours with you guys, that I, we do need to bring this to a close, but I want to give each of you the chance to come back to the original question, which was, should financial independence community be more accepting of financial advisors? And I would think that the answer from all of you is, is a nod yes, right? And anybody disagree that you guys should be, that we should be more accommodating, at least accepting of financial advisors. So based on the spirit of this, the way this conversation has gone, I will adjust the final question to be, how should they find the right financial advisor? I'll go back to Ryan. Yeah. You know, so Ben and I have very similar practices. We both specialize in working with physicians and we both have a flat fee structure model. And I think, you know, looking at the clients that we typically work with, you know, you're a physician, you know, you should be looking in, to work with someone who only works with physicians, who specializes in, who sees this, that your, basically your situations all day, every day. You know, someone that, and this isn't to go back again, I think Michael was talking about their fee-based planning versus fee only planning doesn't mean they're a bad advisor by any means. I just typically look at it as if I was going to hire someone, hire someone that has the least amount of conflicts as possible. And I think it's up to the, the client to determine what those conflicts are. I would ask an advisor, what are your conflicts of interest? Are you a fiduciary? Do you put it in writing? What's your investment philosophy? Um, I tell people all the time when we go through a prospective client call, you didn't ask me how I manage money and you didn't ask if that's the way that I manage my own money for my mom, my brother, my aunts, my uncles. Like you should know that I do the same exact thing for clients that I do for my family. Like that is a very important thing to boiling down. I think the fire community should be more open. And I think people, if you're going to look for an advisor, find someone that specializes in what you do 
and in your situation. Fred, how about you? How would you round us out? What should people be thinking about when they're considering using a financial advisor? There are a couple of things that come to mind. First of all, I mean, I've made it clear how I feel about whether fire bloggers or the blogging community should be more open. Obviously, I'd, I would go back to say, what is your why? Why are you looking for a financial advisor? If, if someone can't answer the why, what do you want a financial advisor to do for you? It's going to be pretty hard to, to select one. And if you don't know, then it, it does make it more difficult. One of the things I always talk about with people too is, you know, what are your values? What do you what do you want money to do for you? What are you, what do you value in life? How do we match that with what you're doing with your money? Saving, investing, spending, insurance, all of those things. I'm a fiduciary advisor, I'm a fee-only advisor. Now I have like Ben both an assets under management and a fee and a flat fee model. You know, I don't like to get hung up on those things. I think there's too much handwriting over that. I want people to have a choice. Here's how you do it. Here's how we do it. There are lots of choices out there. I think everybody should interview at least two or three people. But if, if you don't know why you want a financial advisor and what you want them to do for you, it's going to be pretty hard to make a selection. So I would start with that. Start with the why. Start with what you value, what you want them to do for you. And then go out and, and look for some who are, in my mind, fiduciaries. To Michael's point, there are plenty of good advisors on both sides of the aisle, fiduciary and non-fiduciary, or nobody really is non-fiduciary these days. All the brokerage firms now have both a, have a hybrid model where they you know, have a commission-based product-oriented, and then they have a fee, fee-based, which is generally an asset under management. There are very few brokerage firms that I know of that have any kind of a flat fee model. So if you're looking for a flat fee model, you're likely not going to find that at any brokerage firm, either independent or, you know, large, large firm. So know what you want, know what you want them to do for you and go and find someone who's committed to acting in your best interest. Thank you, Ben. Can I turn that over to you as well? I would say that particularly in the case of physicians, that they should look at a, a financial advisor in much the same way that the lay public would look at a, look at a physician if they, if they kind of knew. You know, if, I, if I'm selecting a physician, I'm looking for someone who put the knowledge, the skills, the experience, and the specialization. I would add to that one more thing for financial advisors. They need to have the knowledge, the skills, the experience, the specialization, and the correct motivation. So knowledge is, you know, do they know what I need them to know? Uh, skills is, are they going to be able to kind of take me the way that I need to go? Experience is, does, it, does this person work with you know, have they worked with people like me in the past? Specialization, are they likely to be able to work with me going forward in the future? Do they know where I need to go? And ultimately, motivation, are they paid in a way where I feel comfortable? Because it's it's perfectly fine to pay a financial advisor a commission if you're buying a product. That's how products are sold. And you have to buy a product if you're going to become financially independent. But by the same token, you know, you may not take life advice from someone who's selling a product. Uh, and you would be uh, foolish to take product advice from someone who is not selling that product. So I think you really have to look, ultimately the, the distinction between looking for a great financial advisor and looking for a great doctor has everything to do with their motivation. Okay, finally, Michael, let's give it to you. Final words on who or how you should go about selecting a financial advisor. So I think the, the biggest problem that consumers make when selecting a financial advisor is actually confusing picking out a financial product with creating a financial plan. And so what happens is, you know, well, let me back up. Most financial plans start with solving a problem. So a client comes to us and they say, okay, we're retired. How do we reduce money in taxes? We were retired. We need to buy health insurance. We're retired. We need to do this, right? So you start with the problem and then you figure out how to solve that problem. And then you go and look at what tools and products and techniques you're going to need to bring into that plan to solve that problem. But you see, most people focus on the product. And so they go to every financial advisor in town or on the internet and they, they ask them questions about the products they're offering, right? Not the actual advice or plan they're generating. They ask them about the products and then everyone does their dog and pony show and they say, well, I'm better than somebody else because I only charge like A or I only charge by B or, oh, I found out you're talking to this low cost guy, so I'll do it for a penny less, right? That's what they do. And at the end of the day, they're purchasing a product. It's just packaged another way. 
everyone here has an interest to get someone to work with them opposed to somebody else and they have a reason why they believe their advice and their models better. So when people are really looking for a financial advisor, they should go to the financial advisor and say, these are my problems, these are my challenges. How do you feel you can solve those problems and challenges and what's the best way to do that? Let them create a proposal and create a plan for them, for you. Take that plan. Obviously, ask them to disclose the fees and costs and commissions and everything involved. Take that plan home. Then go to the other financial advisors you're considering and ask them to do the same thing. I, I highly recommend that people do not go to an advisor and say, I saw ABC advisor and he recommended this. Because if you go to another advisor, I don't care if you're a fiduciary or not, if you go to another financial advisor and you show them a plan created by another advisor, you're about to get an hour and a half lesson on why that thing, that plan that he created is the great Satan. You know, you want to take a plan, ask them to disclose everything, and you want to focus on the why. Why does this solve my problems? Why is what you're recommending better able to solve my problems than what someone else might recommend? And when you have a good advisor that understands your problems and how to solve those problems, they won't have a problem creating a plan for you. Most will do it for free. Create a plan for your proposal and let you know what's possible. Wonderful. I'm going to give each of you a chance to promote where we can find you, um, whether it be online or just however you want to reach out to you and then ask you, what is up next in your life? We'll go to Ryan first. Where can we find you and what's up next in your life? Yeah. So like I said before, I'm a financial planner at Physician Wealth Services and I house the blog and podcast Financial Residency at financialresidency.com. And uh, what is next? Uh, we have a new podcast that's launching the beginning of January and it's called Money Care Specialists. And uh, it's taking real world examples of healthcare professionals and showing some practical ways to actually plan how two planners would dissect a potential new client. And uh, if, if this person was to walk into our office. That's fantastic. While I was listening to this, I was thinking this topic alone could be an entire podcast for years on to, to, to come. So uh, it sounds like that's what you're working on. And by the time this goes live, I bet yours will, will already be live. So we'll make sure and uh, provide a link in the show notes. Thank you for being on. Thank Fred, you same me. to you. Cora, where can we find you and what is up next for you? Yeah, uh, you can find my blog at moneywithapurpose.com. And there we blog about three things, personal finance, overcoming adversity, and lifestyle. And my practice site is lemonsoncapital.com. And um, that's where you find, find what we do there. Um, what's up next with me is more of the same. Um, trying to grow the blog, trying to grow the business, and you know, help more people with both. Wonderful. I'll, I'll make sure and uh, add both of those to the show notes. And, and you're talking about bloggers the whole time and you were one yourself, right? So it's... I am one of the evil. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, ben, how about you? Where can we find you and what is up next for you? What's up next for me is training the next generation of financial advisors who want to serve physicians. That's where our focus and energy is going right now. And um, I expect that that will be the focus uh, of my energy for the rest of my career, probably the next 20 years if I should live so long as to serve. And I can be found at physicianfamily.com. Wonderful. Thanks for being on. Michael, you will have the last word here. Where can we find you and what is up next for you? People can find me on my blog, yourmoneygeek.com. And what's up next for me is we just re released a podcast to Money Guys. Looking forward to hearing it. You know, I was really interested in what Ben said, and it really changed the way I think about things. Ben kind of said, look, financial advisors talk about much more than investments. And part of the problem in the FIRE community is we look at the financial advisors and all we think about is investing. Mm -hmm. And he kind of said that's analogous to looking at a physician and only thinking about prescribing. Well, physicians do a lot more. Right. right. They don't only prescribe medicine. They do preventative medicine. They talk about your psychological health. They counsel on nutrition. There's all sorts of things that doctors do and only medicine is a small part of it. And I think sometimes we in the financial independence community miss that. We love numbers. And so we can point to numbers. We can look at how index funds do 
and we can say, aha, I can do just as well, if not better than you. And we discount all those other aspects of what financial advisors do. But that also leaves a problem, right? Because just like they're good and bad doctors, they're good and bad financial advisors. And we love to paint them as villains sometimes just because they're financial advisors, but we all know that's not true. It's more about intention. We love to say that they're good or bad based on the way they charge, right? So if they charge a commission, then they're bad, but if they do an AUM, they're a little better, and maybe if they're fee only, they're the best. But the truth of the matter is, that's not it either. I forgot who said it in the conversation, but some of it is about the heart of the person you're dealing with and what their true intentions are. Right. Which and is so the hardest I, thing to determine. Yeah. And, so, and But it was a great question you asked at the end. Is so how do you choose a financial advisor? It's like you've got to know the person. It's a lot like you would look at any sort of professional you look for. If you're looking for a lawyer, you're looking for a doctor's office, you're looking for a real estate agent. You're looking for the intangibles as much or more so than you are the actually, what am I paying them for directly? One of the kind of the questions that I asked there was about the the value. And I, I was long winded with it. I'm not sure you entirely got the spirit of my question, but the, this idea of there might be a reason to use a, a financial advisor if they could show me the merit of how they could provide me something that I couldn't do it myself or was unwilling to do myself because of the time that I was limited with. And I don't think that necessarily applies to me, but that might very likely applies to many of the panelists' points. It applies to a large segment of the population, a huge segment of the population. And some of those people might be people who are becoming pulled or are getting pulled into the financial independence movement because I think the movement is getting larger and the diehards, the early adopters are not the only people in the movement anymore. There are this second round or second wave of adopters of the financial independent movement that are not going to be as hardcore and they might need somebody who has this context of how to give you the bigger financial picture because they're not going to sit down and figure it all out themselves. Yeah. And I think that's a good point. I think the early adopters are always the more aggressive yeah. and they tend to be more do-it-yourselfers. But as you were saying, as we open this up and this community becomes a true community of individuals with varying interests. You're going to have probably a large subset of people who want and need help. And I think what's really ludicrous is to suggest that financial advisors shouldn't be making money on their advice. I mean, we sell blogging courses. We sell investing courses. We sell all sorts of information. And if we are a blogger and if we're in the financial independence community, And if we charge for it, that's fine. On the other hand, someone who wants to charge for being a life partner and working with you on your investments and truly adding value, we can't expect them to do that for free. And I think that's something we need to squash in this community. Right. And I think the the challenge, the reason so many people in our community push back against that is these more extreme examples. When you hear about where somebody was clearly not acting in a fiduciary or they were selling something that had a commission and it wasn't the best choice for that particular client at that time. It was, it was obviously not something in any stretch of the imagination that it was good to buy or to sell this insurance product or this high load mutual fund to somebody who's just getting started. It just doesn't make sense. We, I think we got to put that part aside is there are the bad people and there are snake oil salesmen in any industry. They're always the bad guys, the bad apples, throw them out. Now let's talk about how to you know, filter out those out. Then there's the, the, the good guys, the good people who are the, the people who can give you the big picture and give you advice, even if it's not about investments. And that's something that I had kind of known in the past, but I had forgotten. And I'm guilty of following that as well, is when I think about a financial advisor, I think of somebody who's actually deciding on what I invest in. And I, at one point I considered becoming a CFP, going down that path and I started researching it and I learned quite a bit. I realized that that probably is not something I would enjoy. And I definitely saw the hurdle it is to overcome to be a legitimate financial advisor. And it does cover multitude of subjects beyond just what investment vehicle to choose. Yeah. And people don't realize it. So financial advisors have the fiduciary responsibility. They have FINRA. They have organizations that monitor them. Whereas bloggers, we have none of that. I thought that was a great point. Yeah, that doesn't mean we can't get around that that a financial advisor who means 
to do you poorly can't get around all that stuff, but there are some protections in place. And I think part of the reason to get this panel specifically together was to also show people that in this financial independence community, we have people who are part of our community who are the good guys that you can call Ben or Michael or Ryan or Fred and know that there are people out there who actually understand the way you look at your finances. And that's what's up next. This has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we'd like to thank Ryan Inman, Michael Dinich, Fred Lemson, and Ben Utley. That's a wrap. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.